Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith from the College of Asia and the Pacific at the Australian National University, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. Today we're broadcasting from Newcastle, Australia's second oldest city. We're on air thanks to Xinhua Razi, the home of Made in China, a quarterly magazine on labour, civil society, and rights. China's role in the Pacific has been in the spotlight lately. Last month, an Australian minister, Conchetta Friavanti Wells, said Beijing was funding useless buildings and roads to nowhere in the Pacific, leaving nations drowning in debt. China's foreign ministry spokesman Lu Kang responded angrily, saying Chinese aid had delivered tangible benefits to local people. Today, we'll be looking behind those headlines at China's growing influence in Papua New Guinea, and we'll examine how that looks on the ground. Beijing seems to be playing a long geopolitical game. Back in 2011, as U.S. Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton spoke frankly about that strategic competition. Let's put aside the moral, humanitarian, do-good side of what we、uh, believe in, and let's just talk, you know, straight realpolitik. We are in a competition with China.、Uh, take Papua New Guinea, huge energy find. Exxon Mobil is producing it. China is in there every day, in every way, trying to figure out how it's going to come in behind us, come in under us. Today on the podcast, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. I'll be acting more as guest than as host, since much of my research for the last decade has been about Chinese investment in the Pacific. Today, we're also delighted to be joined by Joe Chandler, a freelance journalist now working at the University of Melbourne, who's written extensively about Papua New Guinea, covering everything from sorcery to the inexorable spread of drug-resistant tuberculosis. Okay, Graham, let's start with you. I mean, set the scene. Just how much Chinese investment is there in Papua New Guinea? Well, not wanting to give too academic an answer,、um, it's very hard to measure levels of Chinese investment, and that's because the Chinese government measures investment in terms of its first destination. Destination. Now, as a Hong Konger or a former Hong Konger, you know that the first destination for most Chinese investment is Hong Kong、um, or some other tax haven. So it's really hard to get a figure. They admit to around about three billion dollars、um, in Papua New Guinea, but I think it probably is at least double that.、Um, there's huge amounts of investment that isn't picked up at all. So this small-scale retail investment that you see everywhere in Papua New Guinea isn't included in the figures、uh, at all. They, they just don't measure it. China really dominates the、uh, the retail trade in PNG,、uh, the construction sector, and of course it's the biggest destination for PNG's logs.、Um, a huge amount of valuable merbau and rosewood timber ends up、uh, on the floors of of Beijing and elsewhere, and、uh, it's at un- unsustainable levels. I mean, I remember when we talked about East Timor, China had funded all kinds of window dressing projects or massive prestige projects like. They built the army barracks and the parliament building, all this kind of thing. Is that the same in Papua New Guinea? No, I mean you haven't really seen that sort of flashy level. I mean the one that stands out, I guess, would be the the National Convention Center、um, in Port Moresby, but that's that's turned out to be a bit of a dud. A lot of it, I guess, in terms of aid, has been、um, towards projects connected to individual politicians. I guess in the retail area, that I remember, I remember this being something that sort of took me aback when I first started visiting PNG. When you go to really remote communities, 
and there'll be one big shop, like one one big sort of you know sort of supermarket type store, and and that's where everybody goes to get their rice supplies, you know, their their noodles, you know, their fuel, everything, um, clothing, and usually it'll be owned by a Chinese family. And they will have members of the family will be sitting on these really high stools at the checkouts. They're like at a tennis court where the umpire would be sitting. <laughs> and they'll be sit- so the father, the patriarch, will be sitting up there with a mobile phone or a laptop computer watching to make sure that nobody's stealing any of his stuff. So there's this separateness around Chinese enterprise, which are kind of above and removed from this sort of population that are busily churning through his aisles and, and being checked, of course, very, very closely. Every one of them, all their billums are checked as they walk out the door. I remember being really taken aback and then noticing it wasn't just in one town. It was any of these big trade store towns. It was the Chinese enterprise. That's where everybody had to go to shop. And then this sort of sense of kind of strata between these different communities. And Graham, you were saying that they pretty much all come from one place in China, these retail traders. I mean, talk a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't something that I, I really went to Papua New Guinea to look at. Um, I originally went there to look at the Rama Nickel mining project. Um, but in the course of my research, when I talked to Papua New Guineans about what ticks them off about the Chinese, they wouldn't talk so much about the mine. They would talk about these shopkeepers and so I thought I'll you know get to know these shopkeepers befriend them and see where they're coming from and it turned out that well over half of them maybe even close to 80% were coming from a handful of villages uh, in Fujian city in Fujian province so on the eastern seaboard of China and they were a very traditional Chinese community they were a Christian community strangely enough you don't get that vibe in the shops of course and uh, they were there to make as much money as quickly as they possibly could to support their huge expenditures back in China on these six-story kind of mansions that, uh, that anyone who, who knows rural China will be familiar with. But, yeah. I mean, Joe, talk a bit about that kind of separation. How would you characterise sentiment towards Chinese people in Papua New Guinea? Hostile. And certainly if I'm talking about the, the regular people, the fellow that normally drives me around, any of the fixes that I will engage when I'm in rural communities, often there'll be these offhand remarks that are very racist against Chinese, deeply antagonistic, and I'll have relationships with um, Papua New Guineans that have you know helped me out for the last 10 years. And each time I go, I'll be picked up at the airport and I'll hear the latest about the transport project that's just been, you know, the Chinese have taken all of that over, whichever accusations around whichever minister they've you know, most recently paid off. How many buildings are going up that are being built by the Chinese? Real resentment and anger that these workforces are being brought in from outside and a sense that you know they're being locked out of jobs and opportunities as a result of this. And I remember when I first started reporting there, which was around 2009, there were these really nasty riots. Um, and I think there were some deaths, weren't there, in Port Moresby, where mm. Papua New Guineans you know, raced through these sort of Chinese-owned stores and just trashed yeah. them. And in the Highlands too. Yeah, they were quite widespread. At that stage, I used to stay in a little lodging house in, in Port Moresby that was actually owned by, I think, a third generation Chinese family. I remember that family explaining to me that they felt very um, anxious and distressed that um, they were somehow being mixed up with these new Chinese and they had deep roots in this community. Obviously, you know, a wealthy family that have done very well in PNG over the years, but I think you know, there's some level of intermarriage too and, and engagement, I think. Um, 
but they they were very concerned that their safety and their kind of security pr protocols were having to be really escalated in this climate because they were sort of being tarred with the same brush as this new wave of, of Chinese and they were quite um, resentful of it. And the danger is real because um, if you think back to the, the riots in, in Solomon Islands, they saw some very serious um, riots right. against the Chinese in 2006 um, that involved the raising to the ground of, of the entire Chinatown of Honiara, the capital city of Solomon Islands. And in those riots, um, the locals distinguished between the old Chinese and the new arrivals. So they would loot the shops of the new Chinese and leave the old Chinese alone. But in Papua New Guinea, because you have urban settlements, um, these settlers don't distinguish between old and new. So they are in more danger, I think, than they have been in the past. I mean, it's interesting that you say that because the government voice seems to be completely different. Um, here's a, a clip of the Prime Minister, Peter O'Neill, talking um, last year about Chinese investment and how important it's been for the economy. Many of you know that uh, the success of Papua New Guinea's growth in its economy over the past 15 years has largely been contributed to by the Chinese government and the Chinese businesses that we do in the country. That is why we want to continue to expand on it. Graham, why is there this different sense? Well, from the perspective of the political elite, um, the Chinese are really to be welcomed uh, in the sense that they often personally benefit financially from the, uh, this arrival of Chinese investment. Um, but also it gives the political elite a choice, a choice that they haven't had in the past. In the past, very much they had to genuflect to um, Australia as a former colonial power. China being present gives them options in that if they want something done or something built, the Australians won't do it. They can say, well, we'll go to the Chinese and they can get it done. And that always gets a reaction in Canberra. And is China exploiting that? <laughs> Papua New Guinea certainly is. <laughs> um, I don't think there's any doubt that some of the savvier Chinese businesses are, are exploiting that. But the presence, this is one of the ironies of it, the presence of the Chinese state in Papua New Guinea is almost non-existent except for these companies that have real skin in the game and want all the business they can get hold of. The embassy is almost empty. The Ministry of Commerce has very few representatives. So when you talk about China with grand designs, it's really more accurate to talk about a group of Chinese companies with designs on Papua New Guinea. So a lot of these companies are state-owned enterprises, but often they don't act in a way that the Chinese government approves of uh, at all. And certainly these migrants from Fujian province have a very antagonistic relationship with the embassy. They hate their embassy in Port Moresby. They say they're hopeless. Whenever people are murdered, they do nothing. They'll just send out a notice saying, well, take care and stay inside. On the other side of things, you can have a private company like Huawei that behaves in a way that is both in the Chinese interest and is incredibly bullying. They will push the Papua New Guinean government in a way that few other companies do. I'm generally dealing or often dealing with street level Papua New Guineans and, and rural Papua New Guineans, sort of, you know, the 80% plus who are farmers, rural people living off their own produce, taxi drivers, and sometimes, you know, sort of school teachers and civil servants who themselves are, you know, often go for very long periods of time without being paid. Certainly the, the concern that I hear bubbling up from them is just often directed at these big infrastructure companies that are Chinese that have just got the contract to build the flyover or the new hotels. Um, interestingly, often 
much more rabidly hostile even than sometimes is directed toward the Malaysian groups that have been pulling logs out of the country for you know many years in, in, in massive land grabbing exercises that have been explored and documented by the government but nothing has been done really to shut those down. Incredibly powerful force and yet the sense I often get is that Papua New Guineans are less worried about them than they are from the Chinese. Would you agree with that or have I picked up the wrong vibe? No, 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 absolutely agree with you that there is this paradox that these Malaysian or indeed Malaysian Chinese companies um, get not a free ride, but they certainly aren't subjected to the same sort of hostility that the new arrivals um, get. And I think partly it's a reflection of newness in the sense that these people, um, mainland Chinese, have only been coming since the early 1990s, whereas the Malaysians have been there since the 1970s. And although they've been, as you say, been doing absolutely dreadful things um, in terms of depleting PNG's timber resources, they are almost accepted um, when they build, for example, a fancy supermarket complex in the middle of Papua New Guinea as sort of part of the PNG landscape. So, Joe, a lot of your reporting is on healthcare, and you were saying that there's this amazing cautionary tale of Chinese influence sort of mm. gone wrong with these sort of astounding ramifications. Yeah. Do you want to talk us through what, what happened? Papua New Guinea has... I won't even say a broken sort of national health network because in many places it was not existent in the first place. But one of the things they did have back in the day was this network of aid posts. So in the most remote places there would be, you know, a little shanty that had some basic equipment attached to it and some basic drugs. And um, and these are in communities where there's, there's no such thing as being able to pop to the pharmacy to pick up something. There are just, you know, you can't get a Panadol, you can't get an aspirin in much of Papua New Guinea. So these aid posts are critical and they're usually just staffed by a, you know, a community health worker that might have some basic skills. Um, and there was an initiative launched, quite a successful one by the Australian government some years ago, where they brought about a new strategy for making sure that provisions were delivered to these really remote places. And by about 2009, 2010, I could be up the Fly River and I'd find some little health centre and there it was, this big big stack of um, you know sort of some basic drugs malaria stuff kits to give to liver babies you know some ba- basic birthing kits and bits and pieces all with Aussaid proudly stamped on the side of them but they'd been you know appropriately delivered to where they were supposed to be and then there was a contract came up for the provisioning of these drugs so they went through this tender process and a couple of um, reputable suppliers put in good tenders but then over the top of them came um, this firm called Borneo Pacific Pharmaceuticals who won the 28 million dollar contract to supply medical kits to the PNG government. Um, the Interestingly, though, the, I was shown the actual breakdown of the tenders, and that was the most expensive of the tenders, <laughs> and yet somehow mysteriously won. The great concern is that this company, Borneo Pacific, they are provided with drugs from a group that are notorious for providing fake drugs, um, a North China pharmaceutical group. The Australian government attempted some leverage around this, and there was an outcry from medical people uh, through PNG and Australia saying that you simply couldn't afford to have these vast parts of the country where the only drugs they were going to get were very likely fake. Fake and overpriced. Fake and overpriced. Mm. The Australian government actually, they said that they would not deliver 
these supplies to these women. They would basically finish that contract unless there was a review and a rethink and that they could know that the drugs that they were going to be delivering at great expense to these remote locations actually had some integrity to them. Um, but basically the Papua New Guinean government um, you know, stuck with Borneo. The Australian government, to the best of my knowledge, withdrew their support for the dispersal of these drugs. So the fallout of that is that many of these remote locations either have no drugs or they have drugs that are ineffective. And it hasn't just been Australia that's been critical. Um, there was a, I think in the last year there was a USAID report that um, said that the drugs being sold by uh, this company were well above international levels. So they weren't even uh, cost competitive, let alone real. That was the the true concern. And and it seems that the shortage has even extended beyond these aid posts. Even Madang Provincial Hospital had no drugs. And you think about the medical need there. You've got you know one of the world's worst TB epidemics, drug-resistant TB epidemics occurring. Um, You've got malaria, obviously, as a huge issue still in Papua New Guinea, even though there have been some great inroads made into, you know, managing and containing that. Um, And, you know, let alone maternal death rates that are amongst the worst in the world. And, uh, And again, all due to a lack of for, you know, access to basic uh, healthcare at the point of delivery. I mean, are people talking about this? Is that one of the reasons why why there's this anti-Chinese sentiment? You know, have you come across this lack of medication yourselves? One of the things I do is I'll go and visit the local school, just have a look around what's there, what's not there. And I'll go and say, what, what, where's the aid post? Do you have a community health worker? What equipment do you have? Do you have a fridge? Are you able to maintain you know, vaccines and cold chain? And in many locations, you know, none of the above. Um, and I'll, you know, what, what equipment do you have? And many, in, in, in remote locations, you can come across aid posts where there's, just, there's literally nothing. Um, and you know, it's been shut down. The community health worker hasn't been paid in months. So they've shot through as well or they're not providing um, any care. Are they blaming the Chinese for that? I think most people blame their own government for this particular crisis. Mm -hmm. And it's so widespread. I mean, a a friend of mine just got back um, from visiting aid posts. He visited over 20 in different parts of PNG and not one of them had any medicine. It's it's just amazing. And, And before that point, when he asked, well, you know, what's been going on? He said their last supply was in 2013 when the AusAid contract ended and that they hadn't seen any medicine since 2013. It's just heartbreaking. You think, what must the toll be of that lack of absolutely basic care? I mean, even before 2013, the health statistics were appalling. Their maternal death rates were up there with Afghanistan. They have the shortest life expectancy in the Pacific. Uh, sort of sub-Saharan African levels, but parts of PNG are probably even worse than sub-Saharan Africa, have life expectancies in the low 50s. Papua New Guineans, they know their government is corrupt. They know Mm. the whole process is corrupt. But I I remember one... Um, low-level official explaining to me on one of my first visits that you know that the corruption in PNG wasn't as bad as it was in other places because he said our corruption is all out there in the open you know we all know we don't bother to go behind your back you know we just arrive in your office we put the bag of cash on the table everybody knows where they stand and everybody knows what's going on so it's good clean corruption was the way that it was framed to me and and I guess the concern is that you know China has come in there with vast amounts of uh, wealth and vast interest in the resources within PNG and is not afraid to splash that cash around. To back you up on that with a, a slightly unlikely data point, one of the questions I always ask these uh, merchants from Fuqing is, 
is it easier to do business here or in China? And they literally laugh in your face and they say, it is so much easier to do business in Papua New Guinea. I only need to bribe a handful of people and they don't come back. I just bribe them once and it's done. And, and they have this huge beam on their face. You know, can you believe it? I only need to bribe a few people once and that's, and that's it. Um, coming back to the issue of TB, mm. you have your own TB story, don't you, from mm. Papua New Guinea? Yes. I mean, tell us what happened. Okay. Um, so one of the first field trips I did, um, oh, it must have been around 2011, so second or third trip I did to Papua New Guinea. So one of the half dozen stories on in, in 2011 was to look at what I was hearing about this um, drug-resistant tuberculosis crisis. Word started to get out that there was a real crisis in, particularly in Daru, which is one of, an island very close to the Australian waters. So I went to Daru and found it, what was indeed a complete catastrophe. The hospital was in absolute meltdown. The chief executive had vanished with a cloud over them, drug running, I believe, and weapons running I think but anyway he had vanished somewhere there'd been a cholera outbreak that there was just zero capacity there were no doctors at the hospital and there were bodies piled up it was a mess and about a year and a half after that then I got mysteriously quite sick and um, started coughing quite a lot and went to the hospital and the next thing I knew I was um, locked up in a (laughs) contained ward as it turned out I was not infectious which was just pure luck but I had picked up a drug resistant strain of TB you know the end of that was two years of basically it's almost like a chemotherapy to get rid of um, drug resistant TB so you know a very long haul to get better even with the best access and treatment in the world it's 50 50 whether you survive drug resistant TB it's a really nasty disease I think somebody estimated that my treatment probably cost over two hundred thousand dollars to fix me but a Harvard medical researcher one of the most eminent or probably the most eminent TB researcher in the world assessed the Daru emergency a couple of years ago I wrote a paper in the Lancet that said it is the worst in the world. So Graham coming to the issue of like bid rigging and bribery I mean how often does that happen with Chinese contracts? It's difficult to say because obviously there's no database uh, there's no bid rigging database I can look up. It does seem to have certainly dogged China's aid to Papua New Guinea in the early days. So, for example, if you look at the PMOZ project, the Pacific Marine Industrial Zone, uh, there's a report that recently came out of this gate being built for a project which cost uh, over a million dollars, I believe, US dollars. When you talk to um, Chinese companies, I've spent a lot of time talking to Chinese contractors about how they get aid projects in, in Papua New Guinea. Um, and they're quite open about their willingness to engage directly with Papua New Guinean ministers and also they're very open about their willingness to back channel their own government, um, particularly their willingness to back channel China Exim Bank to make sure that the concessional loan lands on them. So typically what you'll get is collusion between a Chinese company and a Papua New Guinean politician. And so projects are designed in a way that's less than ideal because they're basically designed just between a couple of Papua New Guinean individuals and a Chinese company that is interested in inflating the prices as much as possible. So from the Chinese point of view, why do you think this happens? I mean, is it the fact that there were kind of there's less oversight over Chinese aid money? Well, I'd say in, in PNG particularly, there's, there's almost no oversight of, of Chinese aid money. For China Exim Bank, you have two people, 
overseeing the whole of the Pacific, China's Pacific aid program. If you look at the Chinese bureaucracy, there's the Department of Foreign Aid in Beijing. It has less than 100 staff for the whole world. Um, so how are they going to monitor individual projects in Papua New Guinea? They simply can't. So they have to trust that the PNG government is acting in its best interests and they have to trust that these Chinese companies are being truthful when they propose projects. And that's, I think, a step too far when it comes to trust. And finally, Graham, where, what kind of role do you think PNG plays in China's geopolitical aspirations for the South Pacific? It's moving up in terms of where its position. So it used to be very much the remote periphery. So unlike Africa, where China had a backstory, had a colonial legacy, in the Pacific, China had no backstory. They just simply weren't there during the Maoist era, building up solidarity as they had in Africa. And I think that partly explains why they're not loved as much as they are in Africa. Where you see in Africa, you know, China is more popular than the US in many in many countries. But in PNG, China is trying to get to understand it, but they just don't have the knowledge that they have in Africa and other places. I see them putting resources towards it, but it's going to take a long time because they're simply so ignorant about the Pacific. And I'll give you one anecdote to, to illustrate how deep the ignorance is. Um, I went to Tonga with the guy who was meant to be developing the country plan for Tonga, so the next five years of Chinese aid to Tonga. And until a week before he got there, he thought he was going to Togo. <laughs> so You're making that up. I am oh, not that Tonga. <laughs> oh that Tonga. And 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 when you talk to Chinese um officials and Chinese workers at these projects, the majority of them think before they go to Papua New Guinea, because it's got the word Guinea in it, um, they must be going to Africa. And it's only when they get off the plane and discover there's not much time difference that they're shocked to find that they're in the Pacific instead. So that's part of the impediment in bringing PNG to a more significant place in Chinese strategy. But just because of where it is in terms of sea lanes, it is moving up the rankings. And there's suggestions that China will soon have an exchange of defence attaches with PNG. That's probably going to happen in the next year or so. There's still a long way down the pecking order. When I first went to Manus and talking to people there, largely about the resentment toward the Australian government's sort of enlistment of Manus for its own political agendas, but a senior um, a senior Manus man who's um, a senior politician telling me a little about how if you get under the scrub on Manus near where the main airport is, and the main runway is still the runway that was built by the Japanese in the war, and there's other these, these massive runways elsewhere on Manus and on an island just off Manus, which the Americans laid down in order to bring these massive bombers in and out because Manus Harbour was absolutely enormous. It was almost the sort of the scale of Pearl Harbour. And MacArthur won the Pacific out of Manus. Like it was strategically, it was this enormous resource. There was something like a million American military went through this tiny little place toward the end of the war. And this PNG politician, this Manus politician pointing out to me said, you know, it wouldn't take too much work to clear some of that rubbish off and we'd have those lovely runways back. And if Australia's not going to help us out with it, I'm pretty sure the Chinese might like to use those. Just put that in your newspaper for me, will you? So in terms of, you know, as you said, opportunistic and leverage, you know. Yeah. And I, and I think the game's changed when it comes to China. Um, I, I would have said if you put it to me, say, um, 
maybe 10 years ago, I would have just laughed it off and said, you know, the Chinese aren't interested in building bases. Mm. But now I wouldn't rule it out at all. I think it's a distinct possibility within the next five to 10 years that the Chinese will look to build some bases of sort in the Pacific. Thanks for joining us, Joe. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks to our guest, Joe Chandler, and to my co-host, Louisa Lin. I'm Graham Smith, and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes or SoundCloud. You'll also find show notes on Facebook to learn more about Joe's work in the Pacific. This episode was recorded at the University of Newcastle with generous support from Xinhua Rezi. Head to their website to find mismatched shards of China, including essays, original artwork, and, of course, our podcast. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and GIFs are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.